Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Lane Kenworthy, a professor of sociology at UC San Diego. Now, I previously talked to him before on the show about his book, Social Democratic America, and I think that was a great conversation. And so when I heard he had a new book out, I was really looking forward to reading it, and I hoped he'd be willing to come back on the show. And obviously he was, and so today I am pleased to be talking to him about his latest book, Social Democratic Capitalism. Lane Kenworthy, welcome back. Thanks. Happy to be here. So I want to start with the real basics. And your basic argument, at least as I saw it after I finished the book, was that there are certain fundamental things that once people get to a certain level of desire, that they are a level of uh, affluence they desire. And that's protection from loss, fairness, and liberty. These are, are these sort of the three fundamentals, would you say? Um, they are, but but it's important to note that here I'm I'm drawing on prior research, uh, especially by Ronald Englehart, yeah. a political scientist, and, and a lot of his collaborators, that find that these are things that people tend to emphasize or put higher on their priority list as their society gets richer. Uh, the way Englehart frames it is that. Uh, as we move past a situation of scarcity or at least perceived scarcity so that we no longer are worried, or at least many people in a society are no longer worried about, you know, whether they're going to have a roof over their head and, and food on the table or being able to basically support their family. Uh, we all along have uh, these desires to, to try to minimize loss or at least the, the cost of, of loss when it happens. Uh, caring about others, caring about fairness in the society, altruistic motives, in other words, and then also caring about personal liberty. But as societies get richer, these things become more and more important. And so over time, uh, at least in a, a democratic country, you're you're more likely to see them generate things like uh, social policies, a welfare state, in other words, variety of policies that promote fairness and equality of opportunity, and also on lots of social and cultural issues, uh, a turn toward more personal liberty or personal freedom. Yeah. And when I, when I was thinking about these basic things, these, uh, I think Engelhardt calls them uh, post-materialist values, that it seemed to me that there was a fourth, maybe a fourth thing that I would add in, uh, and that's prosperity. I mean, because it seems to me that even when people have enough to live comfortably, that whole issue of hedonic adaption and, you know, how humans are is that we always want more. So maybe it's different in the sense that it's always there as opposed to just after we get to a certain level of prosperity. But would you agree that that's another basic, at least in that sense? I suspect you're right about that, that 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 is uh, something that we see pretty constantly across human societies, but it doesn't uh, it doesn't play a role in the book. And as you just said, I'm I'm not sure uh, whether we have evidence about whether that is something that only appears um, in a kind of Engelhart post scarcity or post materialist situation, or whether it's something that uh, that is always there. 
I'm just not sure. You know, actually, I, I like your use of the terms post-scarcity much more because I always felt like uh, post-materialist somehow sounds like we've transcended materialism in some way. And that really, I, I think that's a much more post-scarcity is a, it seems to me a better way to kind of formulate that. Yeah, I think maybe so. I mean, I, I don't like to get too hung up on terminology. Sure. Uh, and Engelhart, Engelhart's, I think he uses the term post-materialist in part because one of the things he observes is that as voters, we no longer tend to be as strongly guided by what are our presumed material interests. So in mm-hmm. other words, people who are less educated, lower income uh, for a good bit of the 20th century in countries like the United States often tend to devote their their economic interests. And we see that diminishing a bit uh, later. And I, I don't know, that, that yeah. may be one of the reasons why Engelhardt yeah. settled on this term post-materialism. Um, but I'm not sure. I, I do think post-scarcity is fine. And so the I bet the reason I bring up these basic things is because uh, it seems to me if we can agree that these are important needs that people have, then the question naturally becomes, well, what sort of system it will best allow people to achieve those goals, those needs, that sort of thing. And and the argument that you're making, not just in this book, I would say, but in your previous book uh, on Social Democratic America, is that it's actually social democratic capitalism. Now, the problem with that term, I think, well, not so much a problem, but I think people have sort of poured their own meaning into that term. And so it can be defined in a lot of ways. And I think it's important then to talk about what you mean by it. And in the book, you point at six core elements of social democratic capitalism, six things sort of fundamental to it. And I thought maybe we could talk about each of those things, at least at least briefly. What are these elements of what you see as a social democratic system? And the first one, I believe, was democracy, right? That's right. Um, political democracy. Uh, and I, I think here maybe it's useful to separate the six into two groups okay. because it's really, I, I think that political democracy, uh, basically capitalist economy and good universal uh, elementary and secondary education or K through 12 education, I think those are important. Uh, without them, the, the model wouldn't make much sense and, and probably wouldn't achieve the outcomes that uh, that I conclude it does. But at the same time, I don't think these are things that uh, play a significant role in distinguishing among the, the world's rich, longstanding democratic countries, which are the, the countries that I focus on. So I'm, I'm really trying to figure out what are the institutions and policies that, that yield good outcomes, like the ones we were just talking about, in this particular context, where a society is pretty affluent, where it has a political democracy. And so Capitalism, uh, democracy, and uh, and good education, I do think, are critical, um, but they're not important in distinguishing among the, the the set of countries. The the fourth, fifth, and sixth elements, uh, I I do think, uh, uh, vary a lot and in and in particularly significant ways across this set of countries. So and, the fourth, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, no, I was going to say, go ahead, please. Yeah. So you're right on the same line I was thinking. So please go ahead. Sure. So the the fourth is uh, a strong, generous, comprehensive set of public insurance programs or welfare state programs, as they're often called. Uh, and here we we see a lot of variation. Although I think it's 
it's worth stressing that all of these countries, including the United States, which is frequently referred to as a welfare state laggard or sometimes characterized as not really having a welfare state at all, I, I think that's wrong. We, we don't have one that's as generous uh, and broad in scope in terms of the kinds of risks or, or losses that it covers as the leading countries like the, the Nordic nations. Uh, but we do have a, a, a pretty well-developed welfare state. It's certainly much, much different than what existed 100 years ago. So this is best thought of as a, a continuum rather than a kind of categorical either or, yes or no uh, type of, of difference. So the fourth is these public insurance programs. Um, the fifth is a characteristic of modern social democratic capitalism or the, the Nordic model. Uh, and that's uh, a heavy emphasis on employment. So uh, a generation ago, maybe in the late 1960s through perhaps the early 1980s, it was, I think, fairly common for social democrats and, and others uh, on the left or, or those who believed in the value of a, a big welfare state, especially in Western Europe, to think that these societies were heading in the direction of fewer and fewer people in paid employment. Automation was going to uh, take over most of the jobs. And in any case, it would be a good thing if we could reduce work, which which nobody really liked. That view has has very much gone by the, the wayside uh, in social democratic uh, or social democratic capitalist thinking. Um, people now tend to attach much more value to paid employment. Um, none of this is to say that uh, that all paid work is great uh, or that everybody should be in, uh, in employment. But employment does have a lot of value. It does a lot of, uh, of good things uh, for individuals and also for societies. And, and especially important here is paying for those public insurance programs. In, uh, in the modern context of a globalized economy where uh, it's not too difficult for people and companies to move their money around, there's some pressure on tax systems. So it's, it's more difficult to increased tax rates. Um, and so in order to, to pay for uh, a generous welfare state, it helps to have a lot of people in employment uh, so you can tax their, uh, their earnings. Uh, so for this reason, uh, public or government services that make it easier for people to work, and here I'm thinking of things like childcare, uh, paid parental leave, and also active labor market policy, uh, retraining, job placement programs, this, this type of thing. These turn out to be really critical. And then the sixth element uh, serves the same purpose. And uh, this is moderate or modest rather than very stringent regulation of product and labor markets. All of these countries have some basic regulations that protect worker safety, consumer safety, and, uh, and so on. Um, but um, the, the Nordic countries in particular, and Denmark is kind of the, the leader here, have found that if you... If you make these things too stringent, if you, for example, make it too difficult for employers to to hire and fire people, then you end up discouraging uh, employment. And so you can do just fine with a, a lot of cushions with these public insurance programs, um, but allowing a fair amount of flexibility in uh, in labor and product markets. So these fifth and sixth elements get you high employment. The fourth element, the public insurance programs. Um, uh, are very good at uh, at helping the poor and assuring income security. And so together, this package, I conclude, seems to be pretty effective at, at getting uh, at getting good out, right. outcomes. And I think it's important to point out that, as you as you mentioned, that these aren't really binaries. They're all on a continuum because I know, you know, 
plenty of people on the progressive left would say, well, we don't have a real democracy here in the United States. It's sort of a, you know, oligarchy of that sort. But I mean, so you're talking about where uh, countries have to at least get to some basic level of all six of these things. And some are going to be better than others in various in various categories. Yeah, I, th- I, I think that's right. And, and I don't want to diminish or suggest that there are no differences across these countries in, in their type of political system or even their degree of democracy. We certainly have some problems here in the, in the United States, very fundamental ones from the fact that we have a, a winner take all rather than proportional representation electoral system uh, to others. And the same is true for uh, for capitalism itself and, and also for elementary and secondary education systems. It's just that in terms of understanding uh, why these countries uh, do better or worse on things like poverty, income security, equality of opportunity, the kinds of outcomes that I emphasize, it really is the the fourth, fifth, and sixth elements that I just talked about that that I think are the distinguishing factors. You know, and it occurs to me, and just are, are talking about this, that at least one of them, and maybe a couple actually, uh, can differ not just between countries, but within within regions or in the U.S. model within states, because certainly the quality of K through 12 education varies enormously, as do public insurance programs based on because, you know, the United States has a federal system as opposed to other other uh, countries which have more of a unitary system for these things. Yeah, that's right. And, and when it comes to, to public insurance programs, um, uh, this federalism here in the United States is is increasingly important. It's become more difficult in the last generation to to get new new policies enacted or major expansions of policies enacted. And things like the Affordable Care Act are, are more the exception than the rule in the period since roughly 1980 or so. But because we we do allow a fair amount of leeway for states and also uh, cities and, and other local government agencies to to some degree do their own thing, we've seen states like California and Washington, Oregon, New York, Massachusetts jump out ahead in the last couple of decades with uh, with things like expansion of access to health care, uh, paid parental leave policies, new types of pensions. Uh, and also, although it's not a focus of the book, uh, n- not by any means trivially, uh, environmental regulations. Uh, so, yeah, this uh, this can matter, especially in the United States. But it's it's true in some other countries as well, like Germany and Switzerland. There's a fair amount of federalism there, too. And this is, in a way, when I was reading through these, thinking about these these uh, these basic aspects of it, that well, in a way, it seems like it's something that only rich countries need apply. In a sense, in that getting getting all these things really requires a certain basic level of of national wealth. And so, for instance, expecting all of these things to be present in, say, a lot of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa is probably, at this point, maybe asking more than a little bit too much, right? I suspect that's true. It's not something that I've actually researched, and so it's not it's not a conclusion I reach in the book. But I strongly suspect that uh, that it's true that you're unlikely to see a, a comprehensive set of public insurance programs and uh, uh, a very generous, wide-ranging set of employment-oriented services uh, in a country that's quite poor. This would be, uh, uh, I mean, causally we expect it to to come 
uh, only when countries get to this post-scarcity level, when they get much more affluent. Uh, but you could imagine uh, a government in a relatively poor country saying, look, I, I think the Nordic model works great. Let's give it a shot and do what we can. Um, I just suspect uh, it's much much less likely to to be present there. As to whether it would work or not, I, I don't really have any firm conclusions. I'm, I'm a bit skeptical, but uh, but I, you know, I'd want to see what the evidence says. I, I would think that there'd be some other issues involving uh, rule of law and strength of institutions and things like that that are probably going to play an important role in, in developing that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and so, but, but that aside, there are still plenty of countries that if they chose to have the requisite level of, of wealth and development to to look to social de- uh, democratic capitalism. In the book, uh, a number of times you refer to the 20 richest countries, but it seems to me that there could be maybe twice as many countries that conceivably, if they had the political will, could say, well, let's turn to a social democratic capitalism model. Uh, that, does that seem reasonable or about right? I, don't... I, I do think that's probably true. Again, it's not a focus of the book, but I do think that countries in Central Europe, Eastern Europe, some Latin American nations, and a few in Asia, uh, maybe South Africa, uh, all have this as a certainly as a potential option, either right now or or in the not too distant future. And you know, part of the part of the reason for doing for me do, at least doing this kind of research is is not only to inform the United States, although that is my my kind of principal interest, uh, but but exactly as you suggest, to, to think about other countries that, that might be thinking about you know, as we get richer or as we move from middle income to semi-rich status, uh, what, what kind of policy setup do we want to think about adopting? Right. And to inform those decisions, naturally, what, what policymakers and politicians and even the public would want to know as well, is there a good case to be made that social democratic capitalism can meet these needs that that people have? And if we go back to those sort of three or four basic things, you'd need to show or try to make a convincing case that social democratic capitalist countries do provide more fairness, more loss protection, more liberty, and, and ideally more prosperity. And so I thought maybe we could start with, with fairness. What evidence is there that social democratic capitalist systems are fairer than other systems in rich countries? Yeah, so for fairness, I focus on two particular outcomes. And here I draw heavily on uh, on John Rawls' right. approach uh, in his book, A Theory of Justice. Uh, and so just to, to back up for a second, so these three things that we talked about at the outset that Engelhardt and others have found uh, become more important to people as their societies get richer. Um, that's a, an empirical regularity that turns out to be true. It doesn't mean that those are necessarily things that we would desire in a good society. I mean, I, I think, as it happens, most of us would. But so so rather than using those as the outcomes that I focus on, I, I turn to Rawls. Um, not that Rawls was necessarily right, but I, I tend to be a kind of loose Rawlsian, and, and certainly his approach has been uh, has been quite influential over the last half century or so. So Rawls says, "What would we want uh, in a good society?" And, and you know, he's got a particular philosophical setup that uh, that a framework that he uses to to decide these things. But in any case, 
one of the things is equality of opportunity. Another is the, the best possible living standards for the least well-off. And so when it comes to fairness, I focus on those two outcomes. For best possible living standards for the least well-off, I look at uh, incomes, at uh, absolute incomes, at the low end of the distribution, the, as it happens, the 10th percentile, because we have good data on this. Uh, I also look at an indicator of material hardship or material deprivation, uh, uh, increasingly governments these days, uh, to, to supplement information that we get by looking at people's earnings and incomes. They ask a variety of questions about your your quality of life, uh, things about your living conditions. Did you need to go to a doctor but decided not to because you couldn't afford it? Were you unable to pay your bills last month? These kinds of things. So I, I look at an indicator of deprivation. And then I also look at a, an indicator of relative poverty, which is far and away the most commonly used measure among, among comparative poverty researchers. And in all cases, there's a, a strong correlation uh, between uh, the size and scope of the welfare state and then also employment rates, these, these two things that are really at the core of social democratic capitalism and success on these, uh, on these particular outcomes. For equality of opportunity, uh, we don't really have a, a direct measure. There's no such thing. Uh, yeah. Equality of opportunity, most of us would think as something like uh, everybody around age 20, 21, when you're, or at least most people are more or less done with schooling, has a, a roughly equivalent shot at success in, uh, in terms of material well-being in life. And there's really no simple or straightforward indicator there. So a lot of social scientists use a, a measure of what's called uh, relative intergenerational or between generation mobility. That's basically just where you end up on the income ladder relative or compared to where your parents were. And if most people in a country end up in roughly the same position, you know, if your parents were, say, in the bottom 20 percent, you end up tend to end up in the bottom 20 percent. And those whose parents were in the top 10 percent or so tend to end up in the top 10 percent uh, in their adult life. Then we conclude that probably there's there's not that much equality of opportunity in the society where you end up is too too strongly determined by uh, by your situation uh, as a child. So it's not a perfect measure, but it's it's about as good as we can do, probably. Uh, unfortunately, here we don't have good measures uh, for all of the countries, but for the 12 or so that we do, it, it looks very much like social democratic capitalism is good for equality of opportunity, it tends to allow people uh, a better shot at uh, at shifting position compared to where their, their parents were. You know, one thing that I've always, I guess, appreciated from my understanding of, of Rawls, which is, I'll admit, somewhat somewhat limited, but the, the sort of thought experiment way of looking, of thinking about it and that idea of if you didn't know what your position in society would be and that find that veil of ignorance, what sort of society, what sort of system would you would you design? And to me, that sort of that sort of enlightens the uh, makes me look at this look at uh, structures in a very different way than just saying well what's best for me knowing where I'm at now. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's the device that Rawls uses, and from that he concludes that uh, rational humans in that original position or behind that veil of ignorance, as he calls it, would end up choosing to prioritize basic liberties, the the best possible. Uh, living standards for the least well-off and equality of opportunity. Yeah, uh, and I'll just mention here 
that I'm pretty convinced that if Rawls were writing today, so he, he wrote this book mainly in the 1950s and 1960s, and it's published in 1971, um, we've learned a lot about uh, uh, human aversion to loss since then. And so I'm quite convinced that if Rawls were writing today, he would add income security or more broadly economic security uh, to that list uh, that, that people would decide to prioritize. And one other thing I'll mention here is that the, the whole point of, of looking to Rawls or, or maybe to some other philosophical approach is because there are so many outcomes that we can think about that might be desirable in a, a, a good society. Um, and no, no particular institutional or policy setup is going to be best on all of them. So I think it's worth simplifying a bit and saying, okay, are there, are there any that we might choose to prioritize above others? And, you know, by others, I mean things like uh, community or trust or happiness or uh, health uh, and on and on and on. And so, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, I think Rawls is a, a pretty useful starting point. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And you know, as, you, as you said, you can use other starting points as well. Some people would say, well, you can use, you know, the, the teachings of, say, you know, uh, Christianity uh, or, or other things like that. But it, I think it helps to have that sort of construct in place to, to think about these things. Uh, you mentioned, uh, loss aversion and research on that and really the extent to which today we know how much more loss averse people are than maybe we used to think. And so let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, what what does the comparison look like here when we're looking at the social democratic capitalist countries as opposed to rich countries that aren't in terms of how well they help to protect people from those sort of significant losses? Yeah, so we we now, and this is quite recent, but we now have indicators, at least for all of these rich democratic nations, or, or nearly all of them, for what I think is a pretty good, not a perfect, but a pretty good measure of income security. So what you do is you you take any household in which an adult from one year to the next experiences what we'll call a, a large earnings loss. And let's just say arbitrarily that that's 20 or 25 percent of your earnings. So if you're earning forty thousand dollars in year one and in year two, your earnings are thirty thousand or less, uh, we'll call that a large earnings loss. And the 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 indicator here is the average loss in household income among households where uh, uh, one adult experiences that kind of, of earnings loss. And so the idea here is that if we have a a broad and generous set of public insurance programs, one or more of them is likely to kick in when when an individual experiences that kind of earning loss. Let's say you you get fired from your job or your company uh, goes under, so you collect unemployment insurance. Uh, You get an injury or suffer some kind of disability, so maybe you go on a disability program or you're sick for an extended period of time or you decide to take time off to to have a child or spend time with that child, so you get paid parental leave. So there are a variety, or you retire, so you you, you get a public pension. The variety of programs that kick in and soften the the loss to household income that would otherwise occur from this loss of individual earnings. Another way that, that households can alleviate this loss is that a second earner steps up and either increases his or her work hours or or takes a job in the first place if they weren't in in paid work before. So these are these are two pretty useful ways to reduce the degree of income loss. 
uh, welfare state programs and, and adding employment. And as it happens, those are precisely the two types of things that social democratic capitalism is, is really good at. It. And so maybe not surprisingly, we see a very strong correlation between uh, a social democratic capitalism index that I create uh, and um, and smaller household income mm-hmm. losses yeah. when, when there's an earnings loss. And, you know, I think to this point, even a lot of listeners uh, from the Rivas Center would say, well, okay, sure, but, and here's the but thing, even if we agree or admit that social democratic capitalism is in the way you're talking about it, um, fairer, more equal, and that it protects better from loss, it comes at a cost. And the common argument is that, well, the cost is in terms of both less liberty and less overall prosperity. And, you know, those are, I think, very important claims to think about. And so maybe maybe we could talk about those a little bit, starting with that idea of liberty is that as you uh, essentially as you in- increase the safety net and increase the, the fairness in the system, there's this inevitable loss of liberty. Right. Uh, I, I think this is a, a reasonable objection. Um, many on the left historically have said, well, that may or may not be true, but in any case, we think uh, these other goals, uh, low poverty, maybe uh, not too much inequality, equality of opportunity, and so on, are, are just more important than uh, than liberty. But whether you take that view or not, I think it's important to, to look at what data we have to see if, in fact, it's true that there's a trade-off, and, and if so, uh, what's the magnitude of that trade-off? And so I draw here on uh, a couple of uh, economic and personal freedom indexes that have been created mostly by researchers in fairly conservative think tanks like the Fraser Institute or Cato Institute or Heritage Foundation. Uh, and it turns out that when you look across these rich democratic countries, there just isn't uh, any evidence of a, a trade-off between um, being higher on the social democratic capitalism index and uh, and the degree of economic or or personal freedom. And it turns out that the same thing is true for economic growth. The, the main indicator that the people who invoke the possibility of a trade-off between uh, uh, maybe generosity uh, and uh, and prosperity. Um, so here we've got data for most of these countries going back 150 years or so. Uh, we can look uh, over time within these countries. We can compare across the countries. We can do a kind of quasi-experimental thing where we look at change in social democratic capitalism and change in, in economic growth. And none of these approaches yield any kind of evidence of, uh, of a sacrifice or trade-off of economic growth uh, among countries that score higher on the, the social democratic capitalism index. Which I think, uh, I was going to say, I think that's a surprise to a lot of folks because the uh, the common uh, the conventional wisdom, I guess you could say, in some circles is that, well, the, the trade-off is basically if you have, you know, high taxes, all these regulations and strong labor unions and all that kind of stuff, you're inevitably going to have a less dynamic, more slowly growing economy. But what you're saying, what your research has found is that that just doesn't seem to hold true when you're looking at, you know, a large number of countries over time. Yeah, that's right. Theoretically, it's it's very plausible that this is true. And in fact, I strongly suspect that there is some level of welfare state generosity, for example, sure. at which you would begin to observe a trade-off. But the, the Nordic countries, which are the ones that score highest on this, uh, this index that have most fully implemented this model, in other words, 
uh, tend to be around 50, 55% of GDP in terms of their overall taxation and spending. And, and when we're looking at public social programs, it's, it's around 30% of GDP. And so the, the most reasonable conclusion, I think, from the, this real world experience is that whatever that, uh, whatever that level is at which you would begin to observe a trade-off, it's probably higher than, uh, than 50, 55% of GDP. And, and I think you can even make an argument, at least when it comes to liberty, that you could potentially have more liberty in a social democratic capitalist system. And what I mean is, I guess uh, I'm, I'm referring to that distinction. I think it was Isaiah Berlin who first made it between positive and negative liberty. And when we're talking about positive liberty, giving people the, the capabilities to do things and lead fulfilling lives, you can make an argument that there's actually more of that in social democratic capitalist system without that necessary trade-off in negative liberty, which is, or that much of a trade-off in negative liberty, which is government just basically staying out of your life, essentially. I, I think that that's exactly right. Um, in fact, I use one indicator. It's not a perfect one, but it's it's not terrible either, either to to try to look at this. Uh, and I in the book, I think about it partly in the context of opportunity, because I, I think we can conceptualize Berlin's positive liberty as something akin to opportunity yeah. uh, or what Amartya Sen referred to as capabilities or capacities to to decide and choose and pursue whatever it is we want to achieve in, in life. So there's a question that the Gallup World Poll has been asking for the last 10 years or so that says how freedom or sorry, how how satisfied are you with your freedom to choose what you want to do with your life? And so I take the share of the population that uh, that answers, uh, it's a yes or no question, uh, that answers yes to that question as a, a, a kind of rough indicator or proxy for positive freedoms. And there is, in fact, a, a strong positive correlation uh, across these countries between uh, their score on the social democratic capitalism index and um, and the share of the population saying yes, I'm I'm satisfied. Yeah. Which which is not to say that there's no trade off because obviously other things being equal, people would rather be most people would rather be taxed less and regulated less and so forth. But I, I guess the, the argument that I'm thinking of it would make sense as a person of the left, especially, is that that's more than made up for by the gain in in overall positive liberty. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and here I should acknowledge that if if one's view of freedom is purely about how much you pay in taxes, then it's clearly the case that there is a trade-off yeah. here. Because in order to pay for these these programs, not just the public insurance programs, but also the, the services that are that are good for promoting employment, supporting employment, in order to do that, you you need to raise more more money. And so, if you have that kind of very, I think, very narrow conceptualization of freedom, then then yes, there is a, a trade off. But on these broader indices or indicators of of economic or personal freedom, that there isn't any apparent trade off. Now, you've mentioned the Nordic countries a lot because they are sort of the model of social democratic capitalism, and then it seems like that it's a system that's working very well for them and. Even if everyone, if someone were to say, well, okay, I agree that it's working really well in those countries, they're just too different. And that model's not going to travel very well. And it could be for a lot of reasons. They're smaller, their population is more similar, or, you know, a bunch of things. And you look at this issue of generalizability in the book, you spend a lot of time discussing it. And what did you find there? 
Yeah. So here too, I think the the hypothesis uh, that that skeptics bring here uh, is a very reasonable one. It is the case that the countries that have most fully implemented this model are are very strong and homogenous, and and they may be different from uh, from other rich democratic nations in in a host of ways that make it possible for them to adopt this model without suffering trade-offs. Uh, I don't think, given the evidence, that, that there's too much reason to uh, object or be skeptical of the the idea that a bigger welfare state and higher employment will get you less poverty and maybe more equality of opportunity. But, but the skepticism here is about whether uh, other countries, like, say, the United States, could adopt this model. Um, there many would acknowledge that we would have less poverty, let's say, and perhaps more equality of opportunity, more income security. But the worry is that here, unlike in, say, Sweden or Finland or Denmark, uh, there would be trade-offs. Fewer people would decide to work, and so we'd get less economic growth. Or maybe because we're a a much larger country, more diverse in terms of our racial and ethnic makeup, the, the policy simply wouldn't work as well. And so I do try to work through um, as best I can with existing evidence in one of the chapters in the book, each of these, uh, each of these hypotheses uh, having to do with work ethic, uh, maybe intelligence, trust, solidarity, population size, homogeneity, and so on. And what I conclude is there really isn't much reason to, to think that this model wouldn't work uh, just as well in, in bigger com- countries. And let me just say, with respect, that the, the two most common versions of this point to country size and homogeneity. Yeah. And it turns out that what most people who, who raise this, uh, this objection, what they're really thinking about is not actually whether the model would work well in the United States, but whether we're likely to adopt it. It is very much the case that uh, smaller countries historically have been more likely to put this set of policies and institutions in place. And it probably is the case that it's easier to do that in a a small nation, also in a a, a homogenous nation. But that's a very different question from whether the model, if it were adopted and put in place in a larger, more heterogeneous country, would work well. Uh, and it turns out that the, there's no real correlation between small uh, country size, small population, and success on any of the outcomes that I look at, uh, nor uh, is it the case that homogenous countries tend to achieve faster growth or uh, or other things that we might worry about uh, having to trade off if we adopt this social democratic capitalist model. So in any case, um, I, I mean, I guess the, the best thing to say is that uh, if you're really interested, uh, if your listeners are really interested in uh, in these objections, uh, yeah. maybe take a look at the, the chapter. Yeah. Uh, uh, not, uh, not- uh, no, absolutely. In fact, uh, that one of the frustrating things about uh, – Talking well, I, this is the same frustration I, in a way I had with Social Democratic America, not with the book, but with our conversation. Is that there's so much in there, and you you back up your arguments with so much good research that we can only really scratch the surface. And so, absolutely, I hope listeners will uh, will, will take a look at the book because I felt that I had some of those you know, very questions about the Nordic countries, and I felt that they were very very clearly and thoroughly addressed in there. So. Um, so let's talk a little bit about specifically the United States. Now, uh, you mentioned that, you know, countries are on a continuum in terms of how far along this path they are. Where would you rate 
sort of the, I guess you call it the progress of the United States compared to the Nordic countries along this road of, of social democratic capitalism? How do, how do we stand here? Well, to my mind, the, the simplest way to think about this is, is using a, a kind of crude indicator of the scope and generosity of the welfare state. Um, but it's, it's nonetheless not a bad one. And, and it's one for which we've got data that, that go back a good bit over time. And so if you just look at the share of GDP that's spent by the government on various types of welfare state programs, it's roughly zero in all of these countries in the late 1900s. Here in the United States, we had civil war, widow's pensions. Um, but, but essentially, that was the, the sum total of our welfare state. So it begins to rise quite dramatically in the 1930s, as most people know. And in most of these countries has continued to go up fairly steadily since then with kind of a, a bigger jump in the 1960s and slower growth since around 1980 or so. And in, in some countries, no growth at all since 1980. Uh, but if you so if you look at this particular indicator here in the United States, we've gone in the last 100 years from zero to about 20 percent of our GDP spent on these types of programs. The Nordic countries have gone from zero to about, and, and these are the leading countries, they've gone from zero to about 30%. So if you want to use this as your, as your kind of ballpark estimate, we're about two-thirds of the way to where the, the contemporary Nordic countries are. But another way to put this, which I think is useful, is to say that you know, based on that indicator, the contemporary United States is closer to the contemporary Nordic countries than it is to the United States of, say, 1920, uh, a century ago. And so in GDP terms, then, for the United States to get to this level, we're talking probably about like $2 trillion more roughly in, in, in spending on these sort of programs, if my like quick back of the envelope uh, math is even close to correct. Yeah, that's right. About, about 10% of GDP, or our GDP is currently 20, 20 or so tr- trillion dollars, well, at least before the, the COVID crisis. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yes, that's, that's yeah. roughly right. So. In terms of more specific proposals, you have a great chapter called A Better America, where there's this list of things that you believe the United States should be or could potentially improve on. And and I counted 21 separate things. So obviously, there's no way we can get to all of those. But if you could just pick out maybe, you know, a couple, three that you feel are the most important that could do the most good in getting us along this road toward, you know, more fairness and protection from loss and, and, and that sort of thing, what would they be and why? Yeah. So I think the, the first thing I'll say is that I really don't think there is any one or two or three most Im- important. Uh, I think all of these would address different, <clears throat> excuse me, different needs or different failings that we we currently have right. in the United States. Right. But, you know, if pressed to say if I were a policy czar and could tomorrow uh, implement, uh, let's say, four of these, the ones I, I probably would pick would be, first of all, getting to universal health insurance. Uh, that, you know, there are a lot of different ways to do this. I think the, the simplest and relatively small in terms of uh, its cost, in terms of adding to, to our um, to government spending as a share of GDP would be to just expand uh, access to Medicare and Medicaid and, and add a public option that people who don't have health insurance through any other means uh, could get at, at very low cost. Maybe eventually then merge uh, the various public programs, which would get government more leverage 
to exert some some good cost controls. That's another uh, thing that we really need to do with our our healthcare system. But um, lack of access to health insurance is a really big source of economic insecurity. People either without health insurance or with inadequate health insurance can get socked with such a, a huge bill that it's really just life altering. And so that's a, an obvious problem. And, that we and we're, I should point out, we're, we're kind of alone in the United States in this because unlike all the other rich countries, we, this, this is, a, I think, a bad instance of American exceptionalism when we're the only ones who have this sort of crazy quilt, not everyone covered system. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Starting in the 1960s, many of these countries began moving pretty quickly toward close to 100 percent coverage uh, through their healthcare system. And and the last of these other countries, apart from us, got to it, I believe, in the mid 1980s. So it's been roughly a full generation that we're the only country without it. And, you know, we're we're now down to uh, only about 10 percent without uh, any health insurance. But but that's something that's so easy to remedy. I don't mean politically, but just in terms of the yeah. policy solution yeah. uh, and such an obvious failing that, that we absolutely should do that. So that's one. Um, a second that I would uh, want to do right away is early education. So put in place a, a universal, uh, very affordable, high quality system of childcare and preschools. A couple of states around the country and a few localities like New York City have begun to do this, but mostly just by adding preschool for four-year-olds, so the, you know, the one year below kindergarten. That's a, a really good start, but, uh, but we're not very far along here. Uh, and there's now lots of evidence. The, the Nordic countries, especially Denmark and Sweden and Norway, have had this in place for, for almost half a century now. And uh, there's you know, not 100% agreement among researchers, but pretty widespread agreement that this is a good thing, not only for making it easier for um, for parents, especially mothers, to get into the labor force and, and stay in the labor force, but also for equalizing opportunity, for making it easier for kids who come from less advantaged families, neighborhoods, um, cities, and so on, to to have a decent shot in life and and be better prepared for K through 12 schooling and uh, and beyond. So I would do that, and then then I would probably choose two policies or policy changes that would help a lot with uh, with income security and with boosting the, the living standards of the least well-off. Uh, I would probably change our child tax credit to a straightforward child benefit, just a cash payment to families, boost it to about $3,000 per child, um, make it universal. You could tax back a little bit from the very rich if you wanted to save some money, but uh, but I would just I would make it a universal program. And then I would uh, alter and expand our earned income tax credit. The EITC is a terrific program, very helpful in terms of boosting uh, or supplementing earnings for for people with fairly low earnings without uh, creating any any kind of uh, disincentive to, to enter or expand paid work. Um, what I would do is change it so that it's paid to individuals instead of to households. Uh, I would probably boost its level to about four thousand dollars per person, and I would uh, I would increase the the point in the income distribution at which it begins to taper out, so that a lot more middle class Americans can get it. I would also then tie it to GDP per capita. Right now, it's indexed for inflation, which is a pretty good thing. That means it goes up from 
from year to year without policymakers having to intentionally sit down and say, yeah, let's agree to increase it. But it would be even better if it were tied to the economy rather than just right. to, to prices. That would that would help assure that uh, even middle class families, but but also especially working class and, and poor families, were seeing their incomes rise, even if just a bit uh, as the economy gets richer. You know, of all the things you mentioned, that's the last one, the EITC expansion, that at least seems to have some sort of bipartisan support. At least we've heard talk about it for a while expanding. And you can always find a handful of Republicans who seem to think it's a good idea, along with most all Democrats. But still, we don't see nearly the sort of progress on that, that at least I would hope. And on those other things, it becomes, I think, even more difficult, which leads me to, I guess, the last question I have for you is, you know, how optimistic are you? I mean, do you see any way in which the United States, uh, if there is the political will in you know a decade or maybe two decades to move appreciably along this line and be more social democratic capitalist, not not just for the sake of doing that, but obviously to give people these outcomes that you know everyone everyone really wants. Right. I in the long run, I'm very optimistic. Uh, I you know I think. We're probably like to, likely to continue, we, the United States, are probably likely to continue the path we've been on over the last hundred years where progress happens only intermittently, but, but when it does happen, it tends to, to stick. So we very rarely do away with or significantly decrease the generosity of public programs, public social programs. And that's largely because they tend to be so popular, but it's also because our political system makes it, it hard to, to change policy at all both adding it, but also subtracting from it. So the, the mid-1990s welfare reform was one obvious exception to that, but it really is one of very, very few exceptions. So I suspect we're likely to continue uh, on this path. And, you know, if you just draw a little line in about 50 years or so, you get maybe to, to us spending about 30% of GDP on these various programs. There's no guarantee that this is going to happen, obviously. Um, but I, I, I do think it's more likely than not. I'm not at all optimistic, on the other hand, about the very near term. You know, even in the midst of this crisis, there's this commonplace view that crises tend to lead to, to big additions to the welfare state. And, and that certainly happened during the 1930s. But it turns out the 1930s were much more the exception here than the, the rule. Most of our other expansions uh, or creations of new uh, social programs have come in good economic times rather than bad economic times. And, it, and in fact, the, the most common denominator here is is having a left party in the United States, that, that's the Democratic Party, uh, in power with a pretty healthy majority at a progressive moment in time. Um, and here I'm, again, not so optimistic about the near term, but long term, I think things look quite good. We're We're in the midst of this very polarized period where Republicans have adopted, especially in the last 10, 15 years, a very, very oppositional stance. But if you look at the California experience, you see something very similar that happened in the 1990s and into the early 2000s. And and immigration, like it is at the national level, was part of the story there, too. California had become very diverse very quickly. There was a lot of uncertainty about that. The state was quite polarized between progressives and conservatives. Nothing was happening. Uh, a lot of tough on crime and uh, anti-immigrant policymakers got elected as as governors and mayors of some of the bigger cities. Uh, and then the state just moved beyond it. 
diversity helped in part by increasing the, the voting support for, uh, for the Democrats. Uh, but also it, it seems that uh, middle class white Californians kind of got used to the fact that diversity isn't a terrible thing. It doesn't fundamentally ruin your, your quality of life. Indeed, there might even be some some really good aspects to it. So I think the, the California experience makes me optimistic. The other thing that makes me really optimistic is what we see in voting patterns among millennials and uh, Generation Z, who are very, very strongly democratic. Yeah. And, and there's a there's a pretty common pattern where uh, people tend to whatever whatever they vote when they're around age twenty, they tend to stick with throughout their their life. There's no guarantee that that's going to happen, but if it does with these two generations, we're looking at a pretty substantial change in voting patterns coming in about ten or twenty years. Yeah. And I would argue from a policy standpoint, one thing that can sort of help to uh, keep those changes in place, if there's the ability to do that, is that universality that, that you mentioned in regards to, for instance, your the, uh, the not tax credit, but actually the payment, the child payment thing, because it seems that once a pro, when a program is universal, it becomes much more difficult to scale it back than if it's tied to a, a certain income that they get it, but I don't get it. I do think that's right, although I'll, I'll say that I've, I've been quite impressed with the degree to which non-universal programs seem to have become very strongly supported here in the United States by the, the public. And so the EITC is, is one example of that. It, it seems to be quite solid politically. But even a program that, um, that scholars like me, for, for the very reason that you mentioned, have always worried about, uh, like Medicaid, um, seems now to to be quite strongly supported. Such that it was it was proved difficult, maybe even impossible, for the Republicans in 2017, 2018, when they had both the House and the Senate and the presidency. They turned out not to be able to to pass a, even just a um, um, a reduction of the spending that was increased after the Affordable Care Act. So um, I do think you're right that universal programs politically tend to be on more solid ground. Um, but they're not the only programs that uh, that the public comes to like and support. That is a that is a good shot of uh, optimism, something I think that we can all use a little bit more than these times. So why don't we stop on that optimistic note? Uh, Lane Kenworthy, as always, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. My pleasure. Thank you. That's it for today's show. We hope you like what you heard. If you'd like a second full-length Politics Guys episode every single week, as opposed to just these occasional interviews, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of every episode, as well as other good stuff. To get the details and to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, to email me at mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you full access to that second episode every single week. And if being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but you still like to help us out occasionally, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find the link on our website, politicsguys.com slash support. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, that is a big help as well as leaving ratings and reviews and especially sharing your favorite episodes on social media. That's a big deal to us. 
And if you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, or whatever, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. For more great discussions, check out our bipartisan politics subreddit. You'll find the URL in the show notes. We've also got a Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.